without sharing too much, I mean, in our pre-call, we had you talked about the emotional impact of this decision, not only when you're going through it, but for years after. Uh, the PTSD from this is real. And, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm betting every time you had to go back and interact, it was like ripping the scab off and it started the whole process, the healing process over. So you know, there's an emotional behavioral component to this that needs to be taken seriously as you're going through it. For a decade, Cahaba Wealth Management has been driven by a belief that our fiduciary responsibility is to have conversations with you, our current and future clients, to discover what really matters to you. Wealth is not created overnight. Instead, it is earned by having a solid blueprint that allows you to plan and build for the future. Our goal with this podcast is to share our best practices and strategies about creating a secure and joyous future, while also addressing ideas in the marketplace that do not work as well. Join us on this journey as we discuss the ups and downs of the investment world to educate you and help you make the best possible decisions for your financial well-being. Let's go now to the There Is A Better Way podcast. Hello, listeners. This is MJ Durkin, the host of the There Is A Better Way podcast brought to you by Cahaba Wealth Management. We have a very special episode for you today. Uh, we are going to talk about the uh, the fun subject of divorce. We are going to get into the uh, into the weeds a little bit, some of the details and specifics. In order to do that, uh, we have two uh, gentlemen who have uh, helped people uh, get clear about uh, things that they need to look at and to delve into, and to help them, uh, if you will, separate the wheat from the chaff uh, in a divorce situation. Uh, we have Will Jackson and Brian O'Neill. Uh, they are partners uh, in Cahaba Wealth Management. Gentlemen, how are you today? Doing great, MJ. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Thank you very much. We are uh, we're interested um, to talk with you. Um, uh, I mean, certainly, I guess uh, you know, divorce part two uh, at the uh, uh, at uh, the there there is a better way podcast. Uh, we wish we didn't have to have it. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and we know we did cover some basics in our, our first podcast uh, that I did participate in with another one of our advisors. And so we realized we may well repeat a few of those things today. Um, but we think it's it, that points out how important some of these are and just the realities of how emotional going through a divorce can be. Um, and just making sure the, the first podcast covered a lot of the basics of making sure you do the what do I need to do right now? Get a net worth statement drawn up, uh, engage an attorney, uh, try to freeze credit so that nothing, no shenanigans can happen, and just acknowledge how emotional it can be. Today, uh, Will and I are going to try to spend more time talking about some of the specifics that you might go through and might need to deal with as you're trying to reach a settlement. Perfect. Will? And I'd reiterate, I mean, it's our last podcast on this was empathetic. It was telling you it's unfortunate to go through it, uh, that you have a support network that'll help you navigate the waters. Um, but the fact of the matter is it's a highly emotional time in everyone's lives. It's a very difficult decision to make as a married couple. Um, and it does create quite a few ripples on the water. And our intention today is to give you a checklist of the very important high-level things you need to pay attention to and communicate with not only your divorce attorney, but also ultimately 
financial advisor as you navigate through this process. So very well said. And, uh, you know, um, and, and I just want to take a, a second, you know, in the, the last time we did the, the divorce part one of the divorce podcast, I mentioned to our audience uh, that um, I am a recovering divorced man, uh, long, long time recovered. There's no more, there's no more sting of the, of the, the divorce, but, but Brian, uh, you and Will discussed with me a little bit before we started to hit record um, that, uh, uh, you know, people are, uh, they have a lot of thoughts and emotions and things flying around. It's a pretty crazy time. Actually, there's a, a very famous book. Um, I'm trying to remember her name. She wrote a book about divorce and it's called Crazy Time. Uh, <laughs> and it's a, it is a pretty crazy time, isn't it, Brian? It is. And I'll, I'll refer back to my most recently favorite show, Ted Lasso. Uh, and in the first season, he ends up having a very serious disagreement with another important character in the show. And at the end, uh, they give each other a big hug, hug and he looks at her and he says, divorce is hard. It's hard on everybody. And I understand it. And it, I think it's it's a unique perspective on it, but it's just reality. Um, and so the, the more you can try to clean up the financial side of the ledger and understand that you're making good financial decisions, because there's some personal decisions involved in divorce regarding who's dealing with the kids, who's in charge of what decisions for those kids, which is, to me, really tough to think through. At least we can hopefully provide the guidelines on some of the non-emotional, non-personal sides of this, although we always know that finances are not going to ever be considered non-personal. So we'll do our best to kind of help people think these things through. And the author you were looking for is Abigail Trafford. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's an excellent book. If anybody, any of our listeners, unfortunately, need guidance in that area, uh, I think it's a good place, as you have just recommended, to start. And the other thing I want to say is... We are not attorneys. We are certified financial planners. We deal with clients and have dealt with clients that go through this. We also deal with their attorneys. Divorce law is state specific. So we are not trying to give specific information. We are trying to give a general guideline for people to follow as they communicate so it can give them some direction within that crazy time. Perfect. Really well said. And and I'll, I'll add one more thing, um, which just occurred to me. I remember when I first called my attorney, uh, who was my personal friend, we used to throw each other around on the judo mat uh, when we were kids. And um, and he, be, he became a, a wrecking machine of an attorney in our city. And um, he, he he's just a good close friend. He wasn't going to do my divorce. And he said to me, here's what's going to happen. Everybody is going to tell you all this stuff about divorce. And he said, and 99.9% .9 of it is going to be wrong. So they're going to tell you stuff like hide money and, you know, oh man, you know, she's seeing somebody else. So that's, you're going to get, it's all going to go in your favor and you're going to hear all of this crazy. And he says, uh, until you talk to your actual, the actual professionals that are supposed to guide you, uh, don't believe anything that you hear on the street from your friends and your family. And yeah. I can tell you from experience, he was 100% right. I heard the craziest stuff in the world, but none of it was true when it and came that's down a, that's to a, That's a great segue into sort of the overall message. And, and I know we mentioned this on the last podcast, and Brian's mentioned it already earlier in this podcast. But when you're sitting in that living room and you decide to make the decision to get a divorce and you have joint accounts, joint credit cards, joint debt, everything, what's really important, step number one is create that net worth statement. Where is our money? Where are our debts? Where are they that day? 
and give that to your attorney so you create that record that's time stamped and to your point about all the great advice that you get the the armchair lawyers that you that suddenly appear at your doorstep every action you take after that net worth statements is is created is a direct reflection on your character which will be taken into consideration in the court that ultimately decides what's going to happen in your divorce and i can tell you from experience you may think you're smarter you're not uh someone like me or brian or a law firm that has a financial advisor in there we will figure it out we will follow the money and we will ultimately report it to the court so my advice to you the advice that everybody else gets is get that net worth statement filed and then follow the rules don't try to be smarter don't try to steal don't try to hide because you'll get caught and it'll end up poorly reflecting on you which will ultimately get you an inferior outcome yeah very well said very well said so let's jump into it um let's uh let's start with uh alimony and uh child support brian you want to get us uh, started and then we can uh we can b- back bat it back and forth or will do you want to start i'm going to start with alimony uh alimony you have um a supporting spouse the one who's paying the alimony um prior to 2018 they used to get a deduction for the amount of money they paid uh, they no longer get that uh, and prior to 2018, the receiving spouse um, would pay income tax on what they received. They now do, do not pay that. So there's no tax benefit to to alimony anymore. And we're seeing less of alimony uh, being awarded by the courts. It doesn't mean it's not. It doesn't mean it's gone away. It's just for some reason, strategically, we're seeing divorce attorneys uh, using that lever less than they have traditionally. And I would add that not that our clients are uber wealthy necessarily, some are, some are not. Uh, but I would argue we may, we certainly deal with clientele that is uh, different than say just the average American. And in those cases, I think um, anecdotally, we're hearing attorneys say that perhaps judges are just more willing to divide assets than they are to provide specific income streams. So that may also play a role in you know why there is or is not alimony. But as Will said, we can't, say one way or the other. It's totally up to the judge, ultimately, and what negotiations uh, husband and wife are in to ultimately get to those final decisions. So when figuring out alimony, uh, a court is going to take in earned income. What do you earn in a salary? What have you been paid in a bonus? Do you get partnership distributions? Are there perks that you receive from your employment? Um, any other type of income that shows up on your tax return. To your point, MJ, people will say, oh, you're going to get a divorce. Try to show less money this year. The courts have figured that they'll go back and look at more than one tax return and take an average of what it was when they're figuring this out. Um, The second is child support. Child support is fairly formulaic. Uh, States have very specific rules on how much is paid. It's generally paid to age 18 or 21 if the child is in college. Uh, There's not a whole lot of wiggle room there. Um, A point that we wanted to make, though, is some shocking statistics. When you're figuring out, obviously, the supporting spouse, if they're they're engaged with us, we're going to figure out how much they're paying and make sure the liquidity is there and available. If you're the receiving spouse, you need to be cautious on how much you're including within your overall budget because 6.5 million custodial parents in the United States who were owed child support, 
Just 45.6 received all the money they were due. 28.5% of parents received some of the child support income they were owed. And over a quarter of the parents, 25.9% received none of it. So as a receiving spouse, you have the burden of making sure you're collecting those payments. And if you're not, you have to go back to your attorney who goes back to the court, who then goes after the supporting spouse. And it can go to a point where that supporting spouse is thrown in jail uh, for non-payment of child support. But the point there is if you are the receiving spouse, ex-spouse, you need to be very cautious on your cash flow assumptions on how much you're receiving to make sure that you are receiving it for the statistics that I just, just shared with you. And as Will also referred to in, in discussions of alimony, child support has no tax benefit or cost specifically. It's just money that changes hands to take care of that child. And so both alimony and child support are more discussions of a change in income over time, meaning one spouse is paying the other for some specific amount of time. Uh, and in the case of child support, obviously for specifically to support that child. Um, so those are the two that have to do with with ongoing transfers of assets. And, and I would refer to those almost as future income streams for yeah. a receiving spouse. Replacement so income. The, that, again, and a lot of it is fairly formulaic and is, is mostly going to ultimately come down to the judge's decisions. So where we wanted to kind of begin pivoting and spending a little bit more time is on true division of assets. Because alimony and child support are they're basically going to be dictated on most in most regards. So there's negotiation that comes into splitting assets and it can get complicated. So whereas in our previous podcast, we discussed some of these concepts, we mentioned the concept of a quadro and a few other areas, we didn't really delve into it. So we thought today we would try to provide more background and more specifics on how people do divide assets and where are the, the pros and cons, where are the traps uh, that are associated with that. So as Brian mentioned, next is the division of assets. Going back to the net worth that you filed with your attorney, you take note of how much cash you had in your various bank accounts and your savings accounts, how much investable assets you have in your non-qualified accounts, and then how much of investable assets you have in your qualified accounts. Again, qualified accounts are generally referred to as retirement assets. Um, you'll also have marital property versus separate property what gets divided. Um, separate property is acquired prior to the marriage or through inheritance. Marital assets are assets, debt and income that are acquired during the marriage. Those are the, those are the assets that are going to be really taken into consideration during this uh, separation process. And a point to mention is if you marry somebody with a trust, what you need to understand is generally these trusts are not able to be penetrated. So that is not an asset that you potentially would receive. Uh, in fact, I shouldn't even say potentially. It is an asset that you will not receive uh, ownership of in a in a divorce separation. And then uh, the last and the hardest is the family home, especially when you have kids. Um, you know, do you sell the home prior to the divorce or after the divorce? If you sell it prior, you get the benefit of uh, married filed jointly, uh, capital gains exclusion of a half a million dollars. If you sell it after individually, you only have $250,000. So that's something that you want to think about. Um, and then how do you maintain the house? Uh, if you had a mortgage on it and the ex-spouses did not get the house in the divorce decree, you have to remove that ex-spouse from it. You have to qualify for the mortgage on your own. So you have to have replacement income in order to qualify. 
So it gets complicated on holding onto the house with the kids. And that is generally a place where uh, we run into a lot of, of negotiation and back and forth between the the supporting spouse and the receiving spouse to figure out a fair and equitable division. And one thing we watch for at Cahaba is the liquidity versus non-liquid assets, because you don't want one person to get, let's say, the house and forego all the liquid assets and then have no way of paying for that house and all the expenses associated with that house. Um, that's, that's something we've run into more than a few times. Um, and it's very hard cause it's an emotional decision, uh, to explain to a client that that house ultimately needs to be sold and both parties need to go and start fresh. And I, I cannot reiterate that enough. Um, just how, you know, divorce is hard enough as it is. And the idea of, you know, husband and wife deciding, we're no longer going to be together. And oh, by the way, we're going to tear our kids away from the place they've grown up. It is the single hardest asset to make a decision on. And more often than not, at least one of the, the spouses wants to stay in that house. They want to keep their kids you know, in their normal environment. And as Will pointed out, it can really create a trap if, you, you know, if you've been able to save enough to own a house but haven't saved a whole lot elsewhere. And let's assume for argument's sake, you don't get alimony. And yes, you'll get some child support potentially. If you are the caring uh, spouse, the, the caregiving spouse in that household, but you may not have enough money to actually pay for the house on an ongoing basis. In addition, if you receive that as part of the decree and the other spouse is exiting everything to do with the house, you would have to, as Will pointed out, go get a mortgage based solely on your own credit and your own income. And think about how many people who get married and one spouse has worked historically, the other spouse may not even have credit. So there are some, you know, finer points of this that un unfortunately, yeah, you'd like to be able to stay in that house, but sometimes it's just not possible. And thus, as Will pointed out also, if and when you just come to the decision to sell it, selling it prior to the divorce in many cases makes a heck of a lot more sense because you get a joint exclusion on capital gains of up to a half million dollars. Whereas if you waited till after your divorce, you're the single owner of that house, your exclusion is only $250,000. So there's a lot that goes into that house decision, especially. And, and for the more affluent client where you have a second home or you have m multiple cars or you have other, other assets that are illiquid, uh, that are expensive and really emotional, there's a lot of emotional attached to, attachment to it. It's difficult, I understand, but our recommendation is that you make this divorce as clean as possible. You don't want to have legacy assets which you're sharing for an undetermined period of time back and forth because you're constantly dealing with the person that you've just decided to separate from. Uh, it, is, it, is a, it is a situation we see. Uh, it happens because generally those assets are discussed later on in the separation. They're, they're secondary, if you will. And by that point, everyone's so tired, they say, okay, let's just share those because we figured out how to, how to pay our bills and live our lives separately. Let's just share those and figure out that later. Our advice to you is dig in and make it as clean as possible because it is a decision that we have seen does not work smoothly in the future years. Yeah, I would say you, you get divorced for a reason. You don't yeah. want to get on the phone with each other three years later and haggle over money. So the more you can clean it up, the better for sure. Yeah, and and let me say as a um, uh, as as a divorced person that um, 
I, I made a decision against the advice of uh, my advisors about uh, paying for something in the future. And it tied me uh, to my former in a way that I wish to God I had never, ever done that. And I wish I had listened to him. So <laughs> caveat emptor, buyer, be, buyer beware. Well, and and without sharing too much, I mean, in our pre-call, we had, you talked about the emotional impact of this decision, not only when you're going through it, but for years after. Uh, the PTSD from this is real. And and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm betting every time you had to go back and interact, it was like ripping the scab off and it started the whole process, the healing process over. So you know, there's an emotional behavioral component to this that needs to be taken seriously as you're going through it. And it, it's, it comes back to a lot of times you'll have heard us in previous podcasts talk about behavior and whether it's being an investor, how behavior can trip you up. You know, when you're, I can only imagine uh, when you're getting a divorce that you just want to get it over with and you want the immediate gratification of being on the back end and saying, I'm done. But in the instance you brought up, uh, MJ, you're not done. You still have to deal with some issues. So as Will said earlier, dig in, spend that extra 10 hours on the front end in negotiations, which means you're going to spend more on your attorney. Um, there's other negatives to it. But if you do it that way, then hopefully a year from now, two years from now, the financial healing process is well on its way, but also the the personal and emotional healing process doesn't get interrupted by negative interactions with the ex-spouse. Yeah. And let, and let me say to our listeners, this is, this is really, really good advice. Uh, and, um, and, and our, our recommendation would be to take it, take it seriously. Try you, it sounds great when you say, Oh yes, we'll be reasonable about this five years from now. When 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 college finally hits, I'm sure we can work it out. Well, you'd be surprised how you will not. Yeah. So <laughs> we've seen we've seen a lot of instances of that, unfortunately. So um what we've focused on so far um have been the simpler things to discuss during a divorce. And not nothing in divorce is simple. So as you know, again, alimony and child support on many respects are, are fairly formulaic. Um, regular assets, specifically the house, there's emotion attached to it, but you can usually come to a logical conclusion about what needs to happen. So we wanted to spend a few minutes talking about the assets that are going to be a lot more complicated. Now, I say that with the starting point of the first asset that I will discuss is actually super easy. Um, Will referenced earlier retirement accounts, and sometimes people refer to them as qualified retirement accounts. I do want to make sure that we are clear on what is a qualified retirement plan. And that's a verbiage that is built into typically corporate style uh, benefit plans. And you know, we at Cahaba have a very healthy client base made up of corporate executives, so we're very familiar with dealing with these. And so what is a qualified retirement plan? A 401k is a qualified plan, a 403b, which is a 401k for people in nonprofits, a qualified pension plan, uh, although those don't exist too, too much anymore. What qualified in this instance means is it's the same plan for everybody. The, the newest employee of the company comes in, and when that company has a 401k plan, that newest employee will participate in the plan, and the plan is exactly the same as the CEO's 401k plan. 
they are designed to be egalitarian. Now, there are some rules that say, um, you know, how much a person can put in. And certainly CEO might be able to put more of his own dollars or her own dollars into a 401k plan. But the percentage of that person's pay is the same as the newest employee. So a qualified plan in that sense, most commonly are going to be the 401k, 403bs, or qualified defined benefit pension plans. One real key component to understand is that an individual retirement account, an IRA, is not a qualified retirement plan. The reason we bring this up is that anything inside of a qualified retirement plan is fairly easily divisible by the use of a quadro, a qualified domestic relations order, uh, which is a legal document issued by the court, and it basically splits the assets. So if you have $200,000 in your 401k and y'all's divorce negotiations have agreed to spend things, uh, split things in half. Each client, each spouse in that example, divides it in half and each gets $100,000. And it stays tax deferred. So you don't have a distribution. You don't have to pay taxes on it. It is easily split. So IRAs are not like that. They are not split by quadros. And sometimes that's a misconception. You may have an IRA that used to be a 401k plan. You rolled it out. But once you roll it out of that qualified retirement plan, it's now an IRA. Those are not divisible by a quadro. They must be divided inside of the divorce decree. And if done appropriately inside of that divorce decree, the judge, the language will be such that it will be dividable, divisible, excuse me, um, in a tax-free manner. It's not considered a distribution. So that's just a minor detail to focus on, but it's important. And those that that is kind of the uh, differentiation between simple division of assets and where you start to get more complicated. Um, Non-qualified retirement plans, uh, which are plans unlike the qualified plans, they can be different. A CEO or a C-suite executive may have access to a non-qualified deferred compensation plan, whereas that newest employee I just mentioned a minute ago, they're not eligible. Um, that's designed to keep and attract and retain executives, but there are different tax treatments because they're non-qualified. The IRS views them differently. There's a lot more hoops to jump through. You cannot divide those. So a great example is clients we have that work at a particular company, and they have that non-qualified deferred compensation plan. Most of those folks retire, and that plan begins to pay them at retirement over 10 years. Well, imagine you're planning on working until you're 60 and you're getting a divorce at 45, you're having to value an asset that won't begin to pay out for 15 years. And when it does pay out, it's taxable to the recipient. You cannot divide the taxation on it. So think about how complicated that negotiation has to be, where you have to let your attorney, their attorney, everybody involved know, yeah, there are dollars coming out, but they're not coming out till a way future date, which means you have to bring them back to a present value. You have to account for how much tax might be incurred by that distribution and thus have an equitable split after the taxation. The number of times we've run into attorneys who simply don't grasp this concept is pretty staggering. Um, and so, yes, this is a Cahaba Wealth podcast. We obviously hope people are learning, but we also hope people are understanding the value of having a financial advisor. And part of that is we've ended up walking attorneys through this more often than I can count and getting it right instead of some sort of guesswork. So these future assets, and, and we've broached hard-to-value assets, also things like stock options. Um, you may own part of a business or all of a business. 
collectibles, your vehicles. These things are a lot more complicated and it takes nuance to say not only how much is that worth, but how much is it worth after taxes? When would I expect to actually receive any money from that? And that's where these these negotiations can get very, very complicated. One other area on the non-qualified side that we run into some issues with is the employee stock purchase plan. And you can have vesting versus non-vested shares. And sometimes attorneys only look at the vested shares and they don't look at the non-vested shares. And frankly, if you don't have a good advisor or a good attorney, you could be you could be missing a pretty big number on that point. So that's a, a point to 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 make sure that you ask those questions if that is specific to your situation. And then the other point of reference I want to make is Brian was talking about if a 401k uh, comes under a quadro, but an IRA is not uh, uh, under the quadro, the receiving spouse actually rolls their portion, the divided portion of their 401k into an IRA. I've heard people get confused on that and and I didn't want them to listen to this podcast and say, no, it has to go to a 401k. I heard Brian say it. The, the, the supporting spouse, their assets remain in their 401k. The receiving spouse, those assets go into an IRA. Got it. That may be too much detail. I just wanted to make sure it was clear because I've heard people get confused on it. Well, and and MJ, you can you can certainly pick up on a lot of the things we talk about are designed to be as much information for the masses as possible. But occasionally, when we have seen issues. It'll be something we've experienced personally that has been such a challenge that we feel like it's worth adding it into this, you know, again, hopefully not confusing folks, but um, being real clear that, yeah, you know, if you do a quadro, one spouse is going to keep a 401k. But if I'm getting divorced and my spouse works at company A, I can't have a 401k in company A. I don't work there. So that's a good point that Will made. And so it's, no, an IRA can't be divisible by a quadro. But a quadro from a 401k will end up in an IRA. So clear as mud. <laughs> and hopefully everybody's hearing it. This gets complicated. It's good to have good technical advice as somebody who can shepherd you through and at least ask questions uh, to get greater clarity so that you can get to a decision in an efficient way where you feel like you're completely informed and you don't feel like, as uh, going back to all your armchair attorneys, that people are hiding, robbing, and stealing from you. You're doing this in a very orderly, equitable fashion so that you can have as little PTSD from this process as possible and you can go to heal going forward. And not to throw attorneys under the bus. I have several in my family. Um, but every time you pick up the phone and talk to your attorney, the meter's running. and that we try to step in early on and say, look, we don't need the attorney until we've done a full summation of all your assets, liabilities. We can give you the clear picture. You don't need to discuss that with your attorney because you're just going to pay a bunch of money for stuff that we already do. And as part of any normal fee we charge you, we're not going to charge you extra for that. So again, the value of a financial advisor is to be there for you and not feel like you know, you're running the meter on fees just to help you get divorced, which is bad enough as it is. And it's also the expertise on the the assets Brian alluded to and the hard value assets where you don't know the actual value of your private business. You have to go out and have it appraised. And do you trust that appraiser, the collectible, the car that you've had in the garage since you both got married and it's a 68 Mustang? How much is that worth? You don't really know for sure. Um, 
I touched on the stock options, vested versus unvested. Um, Brian touched on the non-qualified retirement plan, the calculation that needs to be done on the future value, current value, and and the tax implications for the party that's actually going to receive the funds versus the party that re- that ultimately receives them, which is the receiving spouse. So it gets complicated on that stuff, and you need people you can trust because you're going to be on a portion of this. There's not going to be a Kelly Blue Book where you can go to and see what something's worth. Yeah, yeah. and, and if, if I can really speak to that on the business ownership side. Being business owners ourselves, we there are days when we talk to our CPA and we leave scratching our heads like, how did he get to this? Accounting is is more complex than any financial uh, specific part of our industry you can find. And if you're somebody negotiating with a spouse that owns a company, you want to make sure that you understand there, there's no shenanigans going on. Um, and again, we're certainly not going to recommend anybody on our side do anything other than just be honest and get the answers out. But if you don't have an advocate on the other side that's saying, wait a second, that business is worth way more than that, um, you got to be careful about it. Well, and and based on everything that you just you just said, which which again I think is uh fr- again from my perspective, is um it it really here here <laughs> for those of you who have ears to hear, hear this. Uh you know, uh get it done now. Uh, you do the extra deep dive, get this kind of advice because uh, you you don't want to. That one of the worst things I, I remember, one of the worst things after it, it was an estate thing with my mom, you know, was you know the IRS coming back and saying this was never taken care of, and and one of one of my attorneys said this should have been taken care of. Yeah. And you you really don't want to hear that after the fact, you know, three to five years, you go to sell your, you go to sell your, your stock that you bought in the em, employee stock purchase program, you know, and nobody took into account what was going to happen, you know, when that stock skyrocketed and was worth a lot more. Um, you don't want to find out after the fact, you take the time to find out now and get these kinds of opinions. Would you agree, gentlemen? Absolutely. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. And a couple of last little details as we work our way towards the end. Um, just remember that your tax filing status in any given year is your marital status as of December 31st of that year. So if you are contemplating a divorce on November the 20th, odds are really high you're going to be filing a joint tax return in 2023 because you're not going to finish and have a divorce filing and divorce decree done by December 31st. That's meaningful in any discussions that you're having um, and any negotiations that you're having. Um, another issue that that Will made sure to point out is, you know, under the old tax code pre-2018, um, parents filed their tax return. If they had kids, they could get exemptions for each child. Um, that was removed completely in the 2018 tax code. So there should be no fighting over, is one going to be an exemption? But if you happen to be in the uh, position to receive a child tax credit, there are a few other nuances that you really can be negotiating over the child who gets to take that credit on a tax return. Uh, and we've seen an, you know, a lot of different instances where one gets it one year, one gets it another year. So just don't be ignorant to the fact that while there is no value for claiming a child as an exemption, there can be some tax benefits for having a child on your tax return versus, say, your ex-spouse's. Um, and then the last piece I would say is just make sure we've talked about assets. We really haven't talked about dividing debt. And, you know, that's it's equally as important because debt not only 
you know, is an at, is a value, but there's a payment stream from that that is required. And so making sure you're titling the debt appropriately, if you're, you know, selling a house, obviously that doesn't account for anything, but if you just hand over a home to your ex-spouse, you need to make sure that ex-spouse takes the mortgage and that's accounted for in any negotiations and the mortgage likely needs to be completely redone. Yeah, so, so is car notes. Car notes, I run yeah. to that more often is, um, you know, the mom has driven a car forever and she's she loves the car. They get divorced. They're both on the note. There is debt associated with the note. So that debt, it's an asset, right? It's an asset that's used. Mm -hmm. um, that debt needs to be accounted for within the overall cash flow settlement. So the asset gets value, but the debt gets subtracted from that to make sure that there's equitable. And then you need to make sure that the cares cash flow uh, available to the receiving spouse in that in order to pay that note going forward so that they don't lose that that asset. Well, and you mean if you're getting divorced and leaving that asset and the note with that ex-spouse, you don't want to be on that note because they could stop paying and you're, you're joint liable for it. So your credit could be ruined by your ex-spouse. So yet another area where you could end up in a pot of hot water that you never thought um, just because you didn't specifically designate all these various assets and liabilities. So again, today probably hadn't been super fun for people to listen to, but hopefully what it has done is added a little bit more color to the very specific decisions that you'll end up having to contemplate when you're sitting down with attorneys and hopefully sitting down with your financial advisor to say, you know, I need to end up on the backside of this as fair as it can possibly be. And then, of course, I'd get kicked out of the Financial Planners Club if I didn't say, post-divorce, you really got to redo your financial plan because it's totally different now. And making sure that you have enough assets and income streams to provide the lifestyle that you want post that divorce uh, is wildly important and something that we spend a lot of time doing. You know, Fortunately, we haven't had too many of these, but certainly the ones we have. That also goes for your estate documents. Mm -hmm. uh, it goes for your insurance documents. It goes for your des uh, beneficiary designations. So um, you need a good financial planner who's going to look in every nook and cranny in order to find out what needs to be changed, going back to your example, so you don't have a, an attorney telling you five years later that should have been fixed. Uh, that's, that's the stuff you need to do. And the thing I'll lead off on is hopefully this has been informative. Uh, I know it's not a fun topic. Um, people do go through it. Our intention here is to give you a good guide or a good path to understand what's involved when you go through it so that you can make sure you're it, at a minimum asking these questions of those that are representing you through this process. And then the last thing is what we let off with. The stress, emotional stress of this is real. The PTSD is real and you need to give yourself time to heal. And one thing I tell clients is do not make big decisions on major life changes for at least a year. And you can call and we can talk about it, but let's not make any decisions or take any action until you've had time to let the dust settle because you are emotionally raw and you're making decisions that aren't really based in, in the true values that you adhere to, you're making them because you're either trying to get even or you feel like there's going to be immediate relief and there rarely is. Yes. Very, very, very well said. Very well said. Um, well, this is, has been a fascinating conversation. I mean, uh, a couple of takeaways for me is I'm glad that there were some of those rules were changed on, um, especially on the, who gets the, uh, uh, the deduction on the kid. That was always a real, let me tell you from a, in a divorced uh, person, that was a 
always a pain in the in the rear end negotiating that you know the, and the person would always take the exemption whether they could take it or not that that was always an issue uh, i'm also interested in brian's comment about uh maybe you have a 68 uh 1968 mustang collectible i would rather it was a 1967 uh, Mustang collectible because that's the <laughs> kind of car that I had when I was a kid. I had a '67 uh, Mustang, but it uh, had a little bit of body rot, and the uh, the passenger door had a. It was a black Mustang, but it had a gold door. So um. <laughs> that would have been a hell of a negotiation, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been a really great conversation. Uh, Will Jackson, Brian O'Neill. Uh, partners at uh, Cahaba Wealth Management. Uh, we really appreciate you being here. Um, and uh, thanks so much for being on the There Is a Better Way podcast. Thank you for sharing with us today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having us. So to all of our listeners, uh, we appreciate you listening. A couple of recommendations, if I could. Um, please give us a five-star rating. Uh, that's very helpful to us. If you'd like the, uh, you, you feel appreciative of the the information um, from this great podcast. Uh, if you're able to write a review, uh, that is also helpful. It'll help more people uh, find the podcast. Also, uh, many of you that are listening probably are uh, clients of Cahaba Wealth Management. And there's a great feature on most podcasts. Usually there's three little buttons uh, somewhere uh, on the top of the podcast, or usually maybe the lower right-hand corner. You can hit those three little buttons and then you can find the share button. And the share button is a great way for you to um, send this podcast to a friend, a family member, somebody you work with. I mean, hey, if you hear of somebody uh, that's going through divorce, you might say, hey, uh, the, the the folks that I have take care of my financial uh, future uh, just did a podcast on that. Let me, let me send that to you and share it to you. And so if you're looking for a way to um, help your friends, family, relatives, people that you work with hitting that share button and sending uh, the podcast uh, to someone is a great way to um, introduce them to uh, this great firm and uh, for them to decide for themselves what the uh, level of, of expertise or the spirit uh, that they bring this, uh, this advice to you. So we thank everybody for listening and we will see you on the next episode of the There Is a Better Way podcast. That concludes this episode of There Is a Better Way. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you check back regularly for new episodes and get connected to the wisdom you'll need to make confident decisions about your family's financial future and well-being. We'll see you on the next episode.